The reason why pension funds and the retirement crisis is so important to us and why I also think it should be important to, to you, to our listeners, is that it's we're talking about extremely large amounts of money. And we're talking about something that affects not only financial markets, but that affects people around the globe. I had the opportunity to chat with Constantine Bomer on his latest looming pension crisis series of white papers focusing on U.S. state pension plans. Constantine walks through the dire straits that U.S. pension plans are in, what it means for investors, and what it means for the U.S. government, both state and federal. I hope you enjoy. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek professional advice for their situation. Welcome to the McKinsey Investments Podcast. My name is Matthew Schnur, and I'm here with Constantine Bomer. Constantine leads our efforts in global fixed income, and he's here today to talk to us about the most recent edition of his Looming Pension Crisis White Papers. Constantine, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Matt. Glad to be back, and thanks for having me here. It's an important topic for me, so I'm very happy to jump in. Excellent. Uh, well, in fact, let's jump right in. Um, maybe you can give the listeners who haven't followed uh, the the white papers or the progression of white papers a sense of what you're doing with this looming pension crisis, and then we can get a little bit more in-depth on the most recent edition. Absolutely, sure. So this is a topic that has been with us now for multiple years, and we've written also several papers on this. So it all started a few years back with a, a general overview of, of what's happening in the, in the pension system worldwide, what is the issue, and I'll speak briefly about where I see the issues. And following, we, following that, we came out with a couple more papers, and those papers are always based on the research, so we use the research first for our funds, the way that we manage uh, money for, for McKenzie and the, the fixed income mandates. But then we also try, because it is an important topic for me, we try to educate and we try to spread the word of the research that we've done to interested um, listeners and interested readers in that topic so that uh, people can also better prepare for the situation. So the, the second paper that we wrote was on, on governments. So that is looking at the global landscape and seeing which countries are well prepared, which countries are ill prepared, what are the differences, and then for us, how can we invest based on that new information? Another model that we created last year and then published a paper on was on U.S. states. And that is an, an interesting one because the U.S. market obviously is the, the biggest market. And here the states are particularly relevant because that's where a lot of the the public sector pension funds are. And those are the teachers and the police officers, the firemen and and so on. So they have extremely right. large pension funds and extremely large pension obligations. So here we wrote a paper on that and we have subsequently also updated that. Uh, that is the, the latest paper that came out just a few weeks ago where we um, added a, a new piece to it past the, the COVID-19 situation with extremely low rates and the budget hits that those states have taken. And the la latest paper that we 
published or will publish. It is written already, but it's not yet published. Will be on uh, U.S. corporate bonds, which is the largest uh, corporate bond market, the largest market for corporates. And here we wanted to also look how our private sector corporations handling the situation. And there are also, of course, some very interesting insights in that. Great, great overview, Constantine. Um, so let's maybe dive in a little bit uh, in more detail to the uh, most recent one, which is on the update to state uh, pension plans. Um, I'll bury the lead a little bit here. It, it's it's uh, fairly dire, um, uh, the analysis that you've gone through. Um, talk to me about what adjustments you've made uh, to your original analysis of uh, U.S. Uh, pension plans and what, it, what, in fact, you found. Yeah, I'll do that. Before I jump in, just to level set everyone a little bit. So the, the reason why pension funds and the retirement crisis is so important to us and why I also think it should be important to, to you, to our listeners, is that it's we're talking about extremely large amounts of money and we're talking about something that affects not only financial markets but that affects people around the globe not only the u.s market which we have now placed a lot of emphasis on or the canadian market which we've also looked at but it is a a developed nation problem so that you have similar problems in many, many, many countries around the globe and the amounts of money are absolutely ginormous. And so, so it all started, those, those pension funds started early to mid part of the past century where governments and uh, companies all barked on providing retirement benefits for their workforce. And typically that was via an invisible portion of the salary that was meant to be invested by the pension fund behind that organization. And initially those things worked extremely well because they didn't have anything really to pay out because it just started. So they didn't have a lot of pensioners and way more money was coming in rather uh, through the contribution than was being being paid out to the retirees. And of course, also the investment landscape uh, in the mid part of the last century was quite a bit different than it is not right now. And interest rate as one example were a lot more generous than they are now. So the models that those pension funds were operating under were correct at the time and reflected the reality as it was seen back then. But um, since then, quite a few things have changed. And the, the promised future that the that or the future that those uh, pension funds were envisioning is has played out a little bit different than what what they assumed. And the biggest differences that uh, we see are that people live way longer than what was expected 50, 70, 80 years ago. So right. people live way longer, and that means that people are way longer in retirement. And the longer you are in retirement, the more money those pension funds have to pay out. Also, the demographic um, pyramid is not a pyramid anymore. It is uh, a, a, a funny, funny-shaped uh, diagram where you have much less people in the younger age groups to support the older age groups. Then, of course, we have one of the biggest cohort, the boomers, are moving out of the workforce into the retirement age, and that is just a very large chunk of people that are all of a sudden transitioning out. So a lot of those pension funds are now getting into the payout stage where they are paying out more money than are than they are receiving. 
And right. so all of those things have, of course, changed uh, in the past few decades. And as what do you do when your assumptions change? Either you adjust the way that you look at things, you adjust your models, or you pretend as if nothing has happened. And by and large, uh, U.S. states have pretended as if nothing has changed and they have kept their models, they have kept their assumptions, they have kept a lot of things very, very similar. Of course, they've made some adjustment, but minor adjustments. But by and large, those assumptions are still in play. And we'll look at what those assumptions are in a few minutes. And for me as an investor, and that's my primary role, I am an investor first and a researcher maybe as secondarily. This is an, a very interesting setup because whenever you have assumptions or deeply held assumptions that are not reflective of reality, it creates a very interesting ingredient for significant moves in financial markets because somebody believes very strongly in something where I'm looking at the data and say, you should not believe in that. And when that turns around, there could be a, a fairly strong a realization aspect. So when we look at uh, U.S. states now in particular, so here we have done uh, uh, our research already a year ago where we looked at uh, U.S. states and at the, at the core of the model that we built is, is our reverse engineered pension formula. And that is looking at all those pension models. They work by different financial models where they plug in certain assumptions. They plug in how long will people generally live? When will they retire? What is our expected rate of return? By how much should we discount future payments into the so it's like present value calculations? So there's a lot of assumptions embedded in those formulas and we just try to reverse engineer those formulas for all the pension funds. And by that, we can isolate the key um, assumptions. And when we isolate those key assumptions, it is possible for us to make changes to those key, key assumptions to better reflect where we see reality and then our model then calculates, well, what does that mean to the overall funding level? What does it mean to the overall deficits, liabilities, uh, and also assets that those pension funds have? What does that all mean if we go from a completely unrealistic assumption to something that is a lot more realistic? And to give in one idea what unrealistic assumptions are in play right now, so U.S. states in general, they still be, uh, use a discount rate, and that is the most cre most crucial piece here. They use a discount rate of over 7%. So what that wow. means in, in, in practical terms is if you have a $100 obligation in 20 years' time, that means if you have $25 right now, you would be considered fully funded. So you have, you have to pay somebody $100 in 20 years. If you have right now $25, you would be gold. Right? You With the idea money. here that if you had $25 and you compounded that at 25 years at 7%, you'd have $100. Is that am I following? Exactly, 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 yes. And, and if you have $26 now, you would be overfunded. Sure. Right? If you have 24, you would be under 26, overfunded. So... And that seems very, very aggressive. And yes. I, as a fixed income guy, 
we are oftentimes seen as maybe a little bit more pessimistic and see the glass as half empty rather than half full. But in a way, having an obligation, whatever obligation it is in 20 years time is very similar to a bond, right? It is the company is borrowing money and is saying, I'll pay you back in 20 years time. And that bond, that bond is basically looking at, okay, what, what level of compensation do I want to have in order to lend that company money for 20 years? So there is a, a real-life example of how those things should be valued, in my opinion. So that's how we, how we approach this subject, and we look at it and say, I think 7.5% or 7% in this day and age is completely unrealistic. It wasn't unrealistic when those uh, pension funds were created, but it is sure. extremely unrealistic right now. And the same also happens on the expected return side. So expected returns are not as crucial as the discount rate, but it is also an important factor. And here, expected returns that uh, that pension funds in the US, so those public pension funds are expecting is 7.6%. Wow. And I would say I'll take 7 seven and a half percent every year that would be a great that would be great for my personal account i would not uh, right that's every single year i would t sign yes. up for that immediately and that's something that is also that hasn't changed much over the past few years or decades and i also don't think that's that's correct because i i think and i believe in the in the capital markets line which is like an upward sloping line, which says, like you start at the risk-free rate, you have on the one side, you have the, the, the risk, and on the other side, you have the expected return, which is basically saying you're, the higher your expected return is, the higher your risk of that investment will be, right? And right. What, I, what I see with um, Federal Reserve in the US, but global central banks bringing down the risk-free rate to zero, that should lower the expected return of everything else too, right? We cannot have, we cannot still believe that we can we can earn double digit returns in in high yield or high single digit returns in high yield for years to come if the yield of high yield bonds is is at four percent, right? That's it. Just doesn't sure. make sense that you can still expect those those high returns. Overall, if your key proportion fixed income is telling you that everything should have a lower expected return. So here again, 7.6% looks extremely aggressive. And here we are also trying to make those adjustments to bring this into line with how we see reality. And we're not trying to, to make the numbers look the most extreme way. We're just saying, look, what, what do we think is a reasonable amount? And maybe let's add a little bit of a buffer so that it doesn't uh, th that we're not taking the most aggressive side, but we want to be realistic in in our assumptions. And if we go into our assumptions, what we say, so we we just brought down um, the assumptions to to a level of initially around four percent. So the discount rate we brought it down to four percent. Uh, when we did our piece last year, and we brought it down now a little bit more to three percent when uh, when we did our our latest piece, the update version. 
okay. on the discount rate. And similarly, we brought down the the expected returns also to a moderate amount. We, we're not saying that you should people should or pension funds should expect to have just returns of three four percent. But we're saying, look, that's the new investment landscape requires uh, new new expectations also of future returns and we are at record highs in many asset classes so is it reasonable to expect that we should have double digit equity returns going forward or would it be a more prudent assumption to say look let's use maybe a an assumption which is risk-free rate plus 400 basis points for for your equity portion or 600 basis points for private equity or more aggressive alternative uh, investments. Okay. And if, and, if, and if we do all of those things, then all of a sudden we get completely different numbers in terms of how big the problem is for, for U.S. states. And U.S. states are, and, and we have data for, I think it's 97% of assets and we have pretty much uh, all major uh, and a lot of minor pension plans in the US. So they officially say that they have a a um, pension deficit of 1.3 trillion. Okay. Last last year when we uh, published our, our original piece, we said 1.3 trillion is not the correct amount. It should be 4.2 trillion. And now with interest rates pegged at zero, and we expect them to be at extremely low levels for a very long time. If we now look at the data and have our final adjustment in place, then we look at it and say it's probably looking more like an, a deficit of $6.4 trillion. And that is a very big number. Yes. And that also means that the funding ratio went from 72%, how U.S. pension funds are claiming they have, to now 38%. That's uh, that's very dire. Um, so uh, so the six point four trillion deficit and thirty eight percent funding ratio. What are you seeing pension plans do to try to make up some of those deficits? Um, are they reshifting their asset allocation? Um, what what's their what's the response been from the individual states? Yeah, great question, Matt. So the the response is pretty much the same all across the, the pension funds that we're monitoring. And that is just go all in just because the numbers are too hard or too impo virtually impossible to achieve by being invested in safe assets. So the trend and the shift has been to go into uh, equity like investments. It doesn't have to be publicly traded equities, but it is private equities. Hedge funds, of course, also were part of it, but private equity is, is a big winner here. Infrastructure is a really big winner. And those are also a little bit preferred because they are a little bit more stale in their pricing. So it doesn't right. move day in day out you can see how how, how the, your portfolio of assets is performing this is more long term more strategic which generally fits pension funds well but it is also a way of avoiding to show the the, the volatility that comes with an investment which is high risk so there's there's no way around that a lot of the private equity funds are higher risk investments but 
the, the monthly reporting might underestimate a little bit of uh, of that embedded volatility that that should be there, but is not uh, necessarily necessarily shown day in and day out. So it is a shift towards riskier assets, and that is at this stage of their cycle uh, quite quite dangerous because we can just look at how how we invest or maybe how uh, some of our relatives are investing. And when you move, when you're in the, the early stage of your career or in your, in your 20s, 30s, 40s, of course, you should have a lot of your assets in risky assets because your time horizon is extremely long. But once you right. move into the, the later stages of your career or also already into your retirement, you should pair back a little bit if you are dependent on that money because you need to have more stability and more certainty that you will get the money that you are spending. You cannot uh, withstand huge drawdowns, for example, when you are at that stage. You can withstand drawdowns in the early parts, but not so much in your later parts. And pension funds as a whole have gone from that accumulation phase, which would be consistent or uh, similar to, to, to a younger person in their career towards the retiree stage, which where they, a lot of the pension funds are now paying out more than they're taking in, which would be the equivalent of a retiree. So that is, that is a little bit dangerous where we see the shift towards risky assets at exactly the wrong time in terms of managing their risk and managing their, their obligations towards their, their retirees. Does that also increase the probability of having sort of multiple states fail at the same time? I'm just thinking if, if everybody is reaching out for risk and we get, call it even a garden variety recession uh, that comes, would that therefore increase the probability that several states at the same time would be having the same type of crisis? Yeah, I, I would think so. I mean, there's, I, I think a lot always has to happen over reporting periods. So if, right. if we get, if we get a, a dip like we've had in, in the spring and an immediate uh, reversal, that's, that's manageable for, for those pension right. funds because oftentimes it just doesn't go over the reporting. If it, doesn't go over the reporting period, they don't need to disclose it or they didn't need to show that their funding level all of a sudden is dramatically different. And then they don't need to act based on that um, publicly available piece of information. So I think this, uh, it, it matters a lot, but it is also, there, there are quite a few nuances. And I think for, for for my outlook of how this will will affect states and whether there will be multiple at the same time, I think a lot of them are in the same boat. And if we get a significant correction in risky assets, which lasts for multiple quarters, then I think you will have quite a few come out at the same time. But it is first the pension funds, it's only second that the states will be affected. So the states right. would then have to find different ways of plugging the hole. And that would then, of course, create a hole in the state's budget. And then that would be the, the, the trickle-down effect would be on, on the states. And here, of course, there are a few states which are in pretty dire situation already. So they don't have a lot of capacity 
to withstand any more pressure from from their pension funds besides the pressures that they're already facing from from the COVID crisis and even pr prior to the COVID, but COVID just exacerbated all the pressures that they have. Like for, for all states, they have generally higher expenditure and lower revenues. And then on top of that, there's this looming pension crisis, which is not far away. It is something that is in close proximity and they don't have the, the firepower to really push back against it and solve the problem. So in the long run, I think there will be a federal solution. But since it's such a hot topic, and since politics, as we've now seen again in the US, is extremely divisive in the US, so there will not be an easy fix, an easy solution. There will be a lot of fighting and battling out, and you pay this, and why is that a... Why do, why do we get a federal bailout of a blue state first over red or red over blue? So there will be a lot of fighting before you get some kind of resolution and that bites uh, market volatility. Right. So, so you, you referenced a, a federal uh, bailout. Um, given the size of the deficit at $6.4 trillion, um, and in your white paper, I'll reference that you do have a, a ranking on each of the states um, is it? Do you, do you see any other solution for, say, the bottom half of states other than a federal bailout, or I guess I suppose default would be the other option? Is there any other solution? Is it possible to fill up this sort of gap through taxation and the like, or is it just too far out of reach? Yeah. Also, good question. I think. I mean, traditionally, that should be the the avenue that they should take. It's Right. You have to get that money from somewhere, but I think we are past that point. It is too, yeah. the problem is too big to use traditional avenues. It has to be an unconventional one. And I think the federal bailout seems to be the most likely one because it's essential workers also. It's police officers, it's teachers, it is. Like this, this, in my opinion, no way to let them go bankrupt. That there right. needs to be, it's too large of a number, too many voters. Everyone knows a teacher in their family. Sure. So there's, right, it's, it's too embedded into the society to let them fail. So there has to be some kind of solution. And that solution is too big for states to cover, too big for the, for the taxpayers to cover. Eventually, everything is the taxpayer, but it will most likely be some kind of financial engineering solution where the federal government will take the take the first uh, stab at it, and it's the the central banks which will provide the backstop for that. Right, makes sense. Uh, last question for you, Constantine, on this topic. Um, as you're doing your research and looking at investment opportunities uh, by buying these U.S. state uh, debt uh, for some of your portfolios, are you seeing the uh, premium or discount that those bonds are trading at uh, embedded um, in in the, the bond prices based on your pension work, or or has it been recognized by the market yet? Yeah, so it is like. For the, I would say for the worst, it is it is a known fact that there are problems. So the worst are your Kentucky or your Illinois, maybe your New Jersey also. So for those, they already trade at a significant premium in terms of the spreads that they have to offer uh, yeah. to, to investors. So I would probably 
I don't want to give investment advice, but it's like for us, we would probably look at the second tier. Mm-hmm. And that is, let's look at some states which are in equally or almost as bad of a shape, but where the market has not paid any attention to them. And I think that those will be the ones where where we see like some more opportunities and some more potential to 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 find some interesting opportunities from uh, from a trading perspective and that's uh, yeah i think that's that's probably where, where i would take it i think there there are some opportunities but it is something that I, we also see as a uh, it's not a it's not going to be a linear trend of where you have like poor states um, having to ask or having to provide more and more spreads to the market in order to get funding. It is more a playbook of when something happens, then we, we know how we have a playbook ready of how we want to be invested because you kind of need an equity market correction for all of those things to play out. If we have a continued strength in equity markets, the can will basically be kicked into the future, into the future, into the future. So we don't want to be short or don't want to take any any positions in, in those states in a positive risk environment. It, it is more of a, it's a lagging effect of once you have a drop in, in risky assets, then you have still some time to put on your positions because it is a somewhat hidden field in the financial markets. But the longer we are in a low risk asset environment, the greater the the, the problems will become for those states. So it is more of a, a timing and we have the playbook ready for once that situation occurs, we can have we have our, our buy or sell tickets already lined up to, to put on the trades that we think make the most sense. Constantine, thanks for spending the time to walk us through the the latest edition. Uh, We'll have you back on when we get uh, into the U.S. uh, corporate. I'd love to dive a little bit deeper into that paper as well when it's ready to go. So thanks again, Constantine. Yeah, my pleasure. And yeah, if you have any interest in any of those papers, we have them, I think, also all on our website. And I'm happy also if anyone ever wants to reach out and discuss anything in greater detail, happy to also do that. Thanks, Constantine. We'll actually link to the papers in the show notes. So I appreciate that. Thanks again. All right. Thank you very much. The content of this podcast, including facts, views, opinions, and recommendations, is not to be used or construed as investment advice and is not an offer or an invitation to buy or sell any security. The content of this podcast should not be relied upon for any purposes, and McKenzie Financial Corporation is not responsible for any reliance upon it. This podcast includes forward-looking information that reflects our current expectations or forecasts of future events. Forward-looking information is subject to risks, uncertainties, and assumptions that could cause actual results to differ materially from those expressed herein. Our views are subject to change based on market conditions. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fund facts and prospectus before investing. The indicated rates of returns are historical annual compounded total returns, including changes to unit values and reinvestment of all dividends or distributions and does not take into account sales, redemptions, distribution, or optional charges or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns. 